Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. You know how every once in a while you come across a book that completely alters the way you think about certain subjects? That happened to me recently while I was reading Thieves of State, an absolutely masterful work by Sarah Shays. Now, Sarah has led an interesting life. She found herself in Kandahar, Afghanistan, the traditional home base of the Taliban, shortly after September 11th to report on its fall and the aftermath of the coalition invasion. She ended up leaving journalism, but stayed on in Afghanistan for nearly a decade, creating a company there in an effort to help in the rebuilding process. This gave her first-hand experience with the kind of corruption most of us think of as endemic in that part of the world. She hardly needed that experience as she had already spent considerable time living and working in places like North Africa and the Balkans. Throughout all of her experiences, she noticed that all of these places, what most of us call global hotspots, had one thing in common, and that is corruption. I had always thought of corruption as a byproduct of unrest and ineffective government, but Sarah Shays makes the case in her book that corruption is the source of unrest. She makes her point by looking at the root causes of the problems in Afghanistan, the Arab Spring, and even looking all the way back to the Reformation. She and I talked about all of this recently, and even discussed some steps we can all take to help combat corruption. I think what Westerners or Americans um, overlook when they think about corruption um, is that it's a crime with victims. I mean, in general, in the United States or the West, when we experience corruption, it's a kind of opportunity cost. We're not experiencing it in our face. You know, it might be some of the city budget got siphoned off, you know, so that like a, a city commissioner could give a contract to his buddy. And what, you know, what's the cost to the citizens? Well, maybe they didn't get the best bridge they could have, or maybe the bridge cost a little bit more than it should have, or maybe there was another better bridge builder who didn't get an equal act, you know, opportunity to, to, to do that job. And that's bad, but most ordinary people don't experience it. In the countries where I started really looking into corruption, it's something that's in your face every single day. And it means you don't drive a vehicle without being stopped by a cop and being shaken down for, you know, pennies, for not a lot of money, but you're being shaken down. And when the police officer walks up to your car, he doesn't say, hey, Dan, look at, you know how lousy the police salaries are. I just, my wife just had another baby and we actually don't have enough money to put shoes on our three-year-old. Could you help me out? I'm telling you, if a policeman walked up to an Afghan and put it that way, the Afghan would take the shoes off his own daughter's you know, feet to give it to the cop, right? But that's not how it is. It's like you are, um, you are, it's arrogant, it's demeaning. Um, it's an abuse of power in your face by officials that, you know, Afghans kept telling me, the police is here to defend the law and they're the ones violating it. 
Um, and then it's not just the police, it's the teacher. It's the, you go to a hospital with a bleeding patient and you have to pay off the doctor to get, you know, an operation done. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. I know an American of Afghan extraction, you know, whose father was killed in a suicide bombing in Afghanistan. He had gone back for, you know, something. And the guy comes to Kandahar and he can't get the death certificate without paying off the clerk. So it's like that. And particularly in poor environments, all people have left is their dignity. And so, and so what I found is what is often dismissed even when Westerners are looking at an environment like Nigeria or Afghanistan or Honduras, they'll, they'll dismiss the petty corruption because the monetary value of it doesn't seem to be very high. But what they're missing is the insult the indignation that it breeds. And when there is no recourse for this type of unfair practice by government officials, people go to extremes. Um, and as I was working on Thieves of State, I mean, I found exactly that conclusion by John Locke, who's, you know, one of the United States, you know, the, the real founding thinkers, I want to say, um, the real inspirations for the construction of the United States of America. So it's like, wow, this isn't just Afghanistan or Nigeria. This is us, too. People who are deprived of recourse on Earth will turn to heaven. And in my context, well, wow, that's exactly what the Taliban are saying. You know, that's what violent insurgents are saying is turn to God and you won't, you know, there won't be this kind of corruption. So in the book, you use terms like kleptocracy, bribery, and backsheesh. But in broad terms, can you just define what corruption is? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a simple sort of dictionary definition, which is the misuse of entrusted office, meaning office um, that owes something to the public good. And that's an interesting term because entrusted office can, can be in the private sector as well as in government, right? If you are the president of a corporation, that's also entrusted office. You have stakeholders in, on whose behalf you're supposed to be um, executing your duties um, for personal gain. But what I discovered as I looked into it, as I experienced it in Afghanistan, and as I then took that experience and tested it in other seriously corrupt countries to see whether it applied, and it did, what I discovered was these are not one-off venal actions by individual, let's say, government officials. It's not the dirty cop who decides to shake someone down. It's not the judge, this one judge over here who's taken bribes, you know, to decide cases a certain way. It's actually in some countries, a lot of countries. You can think of it as the operating system. It actually is the system. Uh, that is that governs the actions of a very sophisticated network. So that's the other thing. It's not like a one-off, you know, kind of nasty guy over in a corner. It's actually, it's a resilient network. It's a flexible network. It includes or weaves across sectors of activity that Americans typically hold separate in our minds. Meaning, you've got government officials and businessmen and out-and-out -out criminals, 
and sometimes in a place like Afghanistan, terrorists are all members of the same network. But, and so we have blinders a little bit because we tend to see those sectors as being antagonistic sometimes when in fact members are working together for the benefit of the members of the network at the expense of the population. And that's where it gets really dangerous and where it um, sparks very extreme reactions. And so I mentioned people turn to violent extremism when they're faced with this in some places. In other places, they turn to revolution. So if you look at, you know, you talk about destabilizing the world, you've got the Arab Spring, you've got Ukraine, you've got, and then those, those um, events then spun off into, you know, a massive new east-west confrontation with Russia in the case of Ukraine. Syria spins off into the disaster, you know, that we've been witnessing for the last number of years, sparking massive waves of migration. Um, similar systems in Africa feed those waves of migration into Europe. Similar systems of corruption in Central America feed massive waves of migration into the US. And that's where I start to get to this idea that, wow, you scratch just about any global crisis and you're going to find systemic corruption underneath it. The role of the network members who hold government office is to bend and distort or disable the agencies and institutions that they're working in or running in government so that those institutions, instead of serving the public, serve the network. And so often they're weaponized, like the justice sector is weaponized, always some instrument of force is weaponized. You can have the tax authority get weaponized, you know, so that you only audit people when they start to not obey what the network wants them to do. And then the structures that are have a little bit, bit of independence, you start hollowing them out. And you do that by underpaying the civil servants, by leaving, um, leaving positions empty, by transferring people to the boonies so that they don't want to keep doing the job. Or, you know, there's all kinds of ways that you can undermine um, the ability of a government agency to function. And then the private sector guys are the ones who are really kind of amassing a lot of the wealth. They're often the contractors who are linked to the government officials. The government officials funnel the public money toward the contractor who then splits it back with the government official. And then you really need criminals in this network because you need, I mean, out and out criminals. You need traffickers, always. You need people who can move stuff across borders. You need an informal instrument of force, the instrument of force that you can plausibly deny. So it's like the thugs that you know, rode camels into Tahrir Square in Egypt, um, the gangs in, in uh, Honduras. It took me a couple of days to realize the so-called gang extortion in Central America, it's outsourced by the police. That's police extortion that they're having the gangs do for them plausible deniability, you know? And then it's always a revocable permission. If the gang starts doing something the police don't want, then they can crack down on them. So that's a much broader understanding of how corruption fun functions than the kind of limited one-off definition that's typically, you know, cited. In the book, you write extensively about the corruption you experienced while living and doing business in Afghanistan. Uh, 
just to set the stage, how did you how did you find yourself in Afghanistan? In Afghanistan, yeah, and in Kandahar um, of all places. Um, so I was a national public radio reporter, and in fact, I had left to keep working in the Balkans. But when 9-11 happened, I knew what the scene was going to be. I knew it was going to be all hands on deck. So I called up my old editor. I'd left a couple of months earlier because I wanted to stay out there in the, you know, in kind of a combat zone or, you know, I mean, just an unsettled um, environment. And 9-11 happened. I called up the editor and said, put me in the lineup if you want me, you know. And so he cycled me in in late October and I stayed through into January um, covering the fall of the Taliban. And I asked to be posted to Kandahar because I knew enough to know that their real capital was Kandahar, not Kabul. And I, that, you know, and I knew also the formal capital draws all of the attention and the resources and stuff like that. And I just knew Kandahar was, was I, I knew enough to know that Kandahar was going to be crucial to how things unfolded. And um, so I worked a rotation and then, and Steve Inskeep came in behind me. Um, and then I was leaving and I had, you know, made a source of President Karzai's uncle, who was a really interesting guy and helped me a lot with some of the deeper cultural um, traditions that explained how some things were playing out that were a little hard to they were a little inexplicable for, for Westerners. And on my way out, he said, you know, let's have dinner in Quetta, Pakistan, you know, on your way out. And, and he did this Karzai thing, which is talk about anything. And then as you're walking out the door, they put the question and he said, why don't you come back and help us? And I mean, this was like, think with your mouth. I said yes before my brain registered what the question was. Um, it just felt like it felt like the plate tectonics of history were grinding and they were and the fault line was right there and where what else would i want to do except watch how all of this happened i have to say and and, and contribute to it i would say the other thing that i had been experiencing having worked in the balkans and having worked in algeria and some other nasty places i was starting to feel troubled by you know, I was making my living off of other people's drama, you know, and what I had, I was not bearing any responsibility for how the story ended or developed. And I sort of having almost decided to bail and live in Algeria and almost decided to bail and live in the Balkans, you know, I couldn't resist the impulse anymore because it felt so historic. What's interesting is that now, Having, with hindsight, let's go back to 9-11. Now I'm going to take you on a little garden path here. 9-11 was the consummate asymmetric act whose objective is to draw attention to something and have a psychological impact. But as I've been studying and looking into some of the things we were talking about before, that people often turn to extremism as a reaction against systemic corruption, 
even for thieves of state, I looked into a lot of Al-Qaeda writing, and it turns out that there was a lot of that in their action too. They were seeing the sort of Wall Street you know, domination and U.S. collusion with the incle incredibly kleptocratic leadership of their countries. That's what they were kind of going after. And I found a quote from Atia saying, yeah, we do hate your corruptive lifestyle. But what he was saying is it's kind of not about women and hair and, you know, the clothes people wear. It's really about this extortionate, financialized, you know, system whereby a clique is milking the resources that are supposed to be for everyone. I mean, I'm putting words into his mouth a little bit there, but there was a huge threat of that in Al-Qaeda. And I'm not trying to, you know, um, excuse what they did or how they did it. I'm just trying to get at some of the real, well, you know, in the last year I've learned there was another bombing right there, exact, just about a century earlier, also in a September. Um, it was the Wall Street bombing of, 20, of 1920. It was an anarchist bombing at the doorstep of J.P. Morgan. And I'm like, oh my God, that's the same gesture for the same reason. That was the Gilded Age. We're living in a second Gilded Age now. And then in the last year, also I've gone back a little bit further, there's another dramatic act not lethal, but dramatic act um, at the equivalent of Wall Street. It happened in 33 AD. It's Jesus and the money changers. He storms the temple, which was Wall Street, Fort Knox, Washington DC, and the military base in Qatar because you had a Roman you know, garrison in the temple and the Vatican, like, and the holiest place for the community. And it was sewn up by a bunch of basically kleptocratic um, elite network. And Jesus walks up there and does a pretty violent act. And there's a lot of pastors who actually have a hard time with it. It's like the Lamb of God is throwing the furniture around. What's going on here? You know, and so in retrospect, I actually feel like I got duped like a lot of other people. The story was on Wall Street. And I went running off to Af Afghanistan thinking that was the big story of the century. In fact, the story was on Wall Street. And sure enough, seven years later, the economy collapses. And I remember I'm in Kandahar in 2008 and, and stuff is going off every day. And I'm like, why are people all concerned about their money? Like, I couldn't understand why the Great Recession was such a big story. Like, we're in a war here, you know, and, and all of this stuff. And it wasn't until I really came back to the US in 2010 and 2011 and started reading into the Great Recession that I realized what a big deal it was. But it's not almost until now that I've come to realize how incredibly significant and emblematic um, that event was and how, in a way, the whole Afghanistan and Iraq ventures in the grand scheme of things are almost details. Because if you think of 2008 as a financial crisis of the sort, sort, three, two, one, 
if you think of 2008 as a sort of global economic crisis of the sort that pocked the Gilded Age, the Gilded Age had panic after panic after panic after panic, and finally they added up to the Great Depression and two world wars. And, you know, and I'm kind of looking at us and thinking, wow, dot com and, you know, the savings and loan crisis and 2008. And I'm like, bang, bang, bang. That looks really familiar. And then you're starting to see, again, people infuriated at systemic corruption around the world. And one way they go extreme is to vote extreme. And you're seeing that in Turkey and in Hungary and in England and in Italy and some would argue in the United States. And I'm like, wow, we're kind of sliding into a more autocratic environment just like in the early 20th century. We're having panic after panic after panic, just like in the late 19th and early 20th century. I'm like, what are we headed for? And that's why all of a sudden, I almost feel like Afghanistan and Iraq are like minor in the grand scheme of the story that we're embarked on now. Can you describe how corruption worked in Afghanistan and how it was institutionalized? Yeah, it just worked everywhere. Corruption in Afghanistan, it was um, every way, shape, and form. Um, basically, any interaction with a government official would require a payment. Um, that meant clearing goods through customs. It meant driving down the roads. It meant, you know, getting your son checked by a doctor. It meant, you know, schooling any administrative paper. I remember one time we were registering our business as a cooperative um, and there were all these things yet. And I really wanted the Afghan staff to be doing everything. I wanted to, you know, be in the background. And my poor financial officer, I mean, he spent nine months going to the cooperative office every single week. And there would be a form missing or the person that, you know, had to sign it wasn't there or whatever, whatever. And finally, how did it go? I think I went and finally we got it. And then one of the things you had to do was deposit a certain amount of money in the Afghan National Bank, which was kind of your collective patrimony. And I send the finance officer off with the money and I get this call saying basically he can't deposit the money. They won't let him deposit the money. And so I go and they want a bribe and they want, you know, a dollar or something. And I said, I pulled the money out of my pocket. I said, I'd be happy to give it to you, but I need a receipt because I've got a board of directors and they want, they look at our expenditures. So here's the money you're asking for. Give me a receipt. And the guy goes, Ooh, well, I can't quite do that. I said, well, then let's go to your manager. You know, so we go to the manager. I say, look it, I need a receipt. You know, manager says, well, she's got a point there. And we go back into it. And then the guy says, well, I can't do this until tomorrow. Now, Laws of physics, I don't know how what happened happened, but the next thing I know, I'm sitting cross-legged on the guy's desk. And I said, fine, I'll sit here until tomorrow. If you want to do this for us tomorrow, that's fine, but I'm going to be here till tomorrow. At which point they have no idea what to do. Like it's a female without her face covered, a foreigner sitting on the damn desk in the middle of the bank, you know, and we got our thing through. So it would be stuff like that. But what was interesting and what was wrong of me was I got my business settled without paying a bribe. But I never 
leveraged that power that I had to make sure, at least while I was in the, in the room, that all the other Afghans in the room didn't have to pay a bribe. I didn't move that far, you know, so it would be things like that. Um, but then the other thing that you learn is that that money that I paid that bank clerk doesn't, or if I had, sorry, if I had paid the bank, bank clerk, it doesn't stay with him. He would have to pay a portion up to his manager, and the manager would have to pay a portion of his take up to the bank president, and it goes all the way up to the minister of finance. And this stuff was going on, and so, Starting in like 2008 or so, um, there were a couple of bribery surveys that, you know, it's a survey, but it wasn't like a perception survey. It was, did you have to pay a bribe this week? How much did you have to pay? You know, and, and based on those types of questions, they extrapolated an estimate between two and five billion US dollars a year. It's like a significant revenue stream that's making its way up to the top of this kleptocratic network. And so you have both the absolute burning indignation of being subjected to this every time you turn around, and you have the fact that, you know, at a dollar a time, it adds up to a heck of a lot of money. Um, you know, so there's both the quantity and the, qu the quantitative and qualitative impact of corruption. Now, going back earlier, you mentioned the Arab Spring. And in the book, you, you write about the Arab Spring a lot. And the impression that most people have about that upheaval is that it was a religious movement. But you offer a different explanation. The Arab Spring is seen as a religious movement? That's the way that I always, really? I always thought of it. Wow, because at the time, if you go back, most of the coverage was that it was a kind of democracy movement, but largely caused by the quote-unquote youth bulge, and that there were all these young people coming into the economy without jobs, but very undifferentiated and very, um, you know, kind of vast structural forces kind of thing. I can see how in retrospect it might have been understood as a religious movement because of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and Natha in, um, in Tunisia. In fact, it was not at all at its outset a religious movement and it was only because those parties were the only structures that the autocratic governments had allowed to exist that they were able to kind of stride into the void, but also because like the Taliban, and as odd as this may sound to Americans, they had a reputation for being clean, for not being corrupt. And so again, I went out at the time, I was working for the Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, and I was fundamentally an Afghanistan-Pakistan person for him. But what I offered him on Afghanistan in particular was I could go outside the wire, I talked the lingo, and I could give him an independent take on what was going down in, you know, his, in the war that he was trying to you know, pilot. And so I wrote him a memo saying, boss, let me do what I did for you in Afghanistan. Let me send me across the Arab Spring. And after asking me what I was going to do when someone tried to chop my head off in, you know, in downtown Cairo, <clears throat> he let me go. Um, and it was within a couple of days that it was obvious to me 
that it was the same corruption um, indignation that I had seen at work in Afghanistan that was driving the Arab Spring. And I saw that because in the demonstrations in Morocco, I started in the West, I went Morocco across to the East, um, you had members of cabinet with behind bars. That's what the posters were um, in the marches, in the demonstrations and stuff. I was shocked because I had been um, in Morocco in the mid-1980s as a Peace Corps volunteer, and I had written a book of fairy tales for teaching English, and I was told I couldn't even use the word king. It was that delicate. You couldn't even, because they were like, oh, that's going to be taken as a coded you know, subversive text. And here you had, you know, the king and the pictures of the ministers by, you know, behind bars and all the way across. And I started asking some of the same questions that I had been schooled to ask when I was examining how kleptocratic networks worked in Afghanistan. I started asking the same questions in Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, you know, and I would, I mean, people would just, oh, of course, that's how it works. You know, and I would get this just dissertation um, showing me a system that functioned very much like Afghanistan's, although some of the revenue streams that were captured might be different, some of the um, methods for routing the money. I mean, Tunisia, for example, had a very sophisticated banking system which was completely subordinated to the um, to the Ben Ali network. Um, and of course, Afghanistan didn't have a sophisticated banking system, although Kabul Bank also was a kind of um, Ponzi scheme too. So, you know, so there were regional or specific variations, but the system was remarkably parallel, even though from the outside, the systems of government look completely different. Like Egypt and Tunisia looked like strongman states. And everyone talked about Afghanistan as being this chaotic, stateless sort of blob. And yet the functioning of the kleptocratic networks was almost identical inside these apparently very different external outward facing shells. With all of this in mind, what do we do about it? Okay, I'm gonna take you a little deeper down the hole before I answer that. Because I've been talking about Tunisia and Honduras and Nigeria and Afghanistan. This thing has its grappling hooks in Western democracies, including the United States of America. I think we are up against the greatest challenge to our experiment in democratic governance that we've experienced probably since the Civil War, if not before. And the point is, we established this country, or our founders established this country, to contrast with government for the clique of elites, which at the time were monarchies. Well, we don't have any powerful monarchies today. That got you know, discredited. But what we do have is cliques of kleptocratic elites that are governing in their own interests. And I've talked about them as networks. What I didn't point out is that they are transnational networks, right? I mean, it if you have transnational organized crime as a strand in your network, necessarily you're a, you're a transnational network. But you already look at, you know, how 
Russian citizens, for example, are, you know, in very significant economic positions in Monaco, in the UK, in the United States, how they have invested into the economies of those countries, how, you know, and I'm just using Russia as one example, it's not the only example. Um, and they, you know, so I would say we're up against the same challenge to government by and for the people that we were in, you know, 1786. And um, unfortunately, where Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia, they waved a big flag and proclaimed their ideological, you know, opposition to democracy. This is much more insidious. And if you compare the inroads made by anti-democratic, again, just to use an example, anti-democratic Russians um, into the fabric of this nation, politically, socially, and economically, the idea that, that would have, we would have let that happen during the Cold War, it, it's preposterous. We would never have let that happen. And so what really scares me is that these kleptocratic networks um, are anathema to government by and for the people. They're the opposite of it. And they are expanding. And there isn't at the moment a really effective counterweight. And I think it's partly because it's a, again, asymmetric warfare. They're kind of camouflaging themselves. They're using the language of democracy and private enterprise, which we love, and we're falling for it. And so, and frankly, we're getting hooked on their money. They're making investments, they're making donations, you know, philanthropic donations and things like that. They're making campaign contributions. Um, via various cutouts and things like that. And we just are a little bit head in the sand. And so the first answer to what do we do is get with it. Like we have to really understand what's happening here. And that means, you know, opening our eyes. It means mapping these networks to some extent, both at home and abroad, not interacting in environments um, like the developing countries I mentioned, but also some of our geostrategic rivals without, you know, with, don't interact in those environments with the sort of genteel categories of private sector and public sector and criminals separate, because that's not how these systems are working right now. Um, and it means follow the money. It means it matters where somebody's money came from. Not all money is alike. Don't take it if it's suspect. Uh, whether you're a think tank or a university or a political you know, uh, candidate, be really careful who's giving you money because they're always getting something for it. And um, I think that, and again, I think I'll speak more in domestically than internationally and say that, that citizens can We've been told that money is speech. Let's vote with it. Let's spend our money in places that we know are clean. Let's take our money out of big banks that are basically part of the kleptocratic infrastructure here in the United States. Let's put them in the local credit union or the you know, rural bank near where we live. Let's, if the antitrust enforcement in the United States isn't where it ought to be, 
hey, let's spend our money on little mom and pop stores whenever we can. It might be a little less convenient. It might cost us, I mean, I just spent a dollar more for milk than I would have at a supermarket. But you know what? I'm really glad to have that little store across the street from me where I know that where they say hi when I walk in the door. And where if there's a problem, I can say, hey, you just sold me expired milk, you know, whatever. I mean, I feel like let's not make, let's not be too drugged by convenience and let's work with our everyday lives to hold our own society to account to, to its own highest standards. And that includes our political party, our gender, our race. Like let's quit just pointing the finger on ethics and integrity at the other side and coming up with excuses for our own side. If we start there, we can at least begin to reshape the underlying culture into one that's less tolerant of corrupt practices than even ours in the United States is today. And that's it for this time. You can read more about our efforts to help expose and fight corruption, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.